I'm Tim Gombas, and this is Faith Improvised. It's a podcast where I can think out loud and talk with friends about pretty much anything, things that interest me, books, movies, sports, music, culture, politics, being Christian in this world, and even my academic discipline, biblical studies. And this is my first episode, so I want to explain what this is all about and why I decided to embark on this little adventure. I want to tell you about a great book that I've recently enjoyed. And then I want to talk about how I came to change my thinking on a pretty major and fundamental aspect of evangelical Christian identity and culture. But first, I want to talk about why I'm even doing this podcast and what my plans and intentions are for it. Just before I do that, I just want to say thank you to my son, Jake, for coming up with the cover art design for this podcast. Jake's a designer in Seattle, and I'm so grateful for him putting his considerable talents uh, to work um, in coming up with that. Thank you, Jake. Also, thanks to uh, Mike Erie and Tim Stafford uh, for their support and encouragement in um, uh, getting this thing up and going. And I'm so grateful uh, for Tim Stafford uh, to uh, for his contribution of the transitional music for this. Both Mike and Tim were just very encouraging um, and offered a lot of support as I uh, had loads of questions about podcasting, whether or not I should even do this. And uh, I very much enjoyed being on the Vox podcast over the last year. And that kind of gave me the idea that I, this would be fun to do. So I'm grateful for, uh, for these friends. Uh, so why am I doing this? Why this podcast? Um, several reasons, really. Uh, first of all, I love learning. I, I love engaging uh, with others over issues that matter. Um, I love excavating uh, and just getting down beneath uh, surface issues, be, uh, cultural dynamics, relational issues, personal issues, interpretational issues. I love just under getting under the skin of a thing or lifting up the hood and tinkering with the gears and just digging down to the bottom. And I find that uh, discussion uh, with others uh, can be a great aid to that. Um, and when I am engaging, you know, when I'm reading actively, when I'm studying, when I'm uh, writing and teaching, I, I just find myself turned on. And I, I love that. Um, and during the school year, I have the structures in place um, to foster that. I love teaching at Grand Rapids Theological Seminary. I love uh, a seminary context. Love my colleagues with whom I enjoy wonderful discussions. I love our students. They're just the best. And um, I love the classroom because I can be a fellow student as we together pursue a better understanding of scripture, biblical theology, uh, etc. Um, when, when I don't have structures in place in, in my life, I tend uh, to get very intellectually lazy. And it is summer here in West Michigan, and it's beautiful. And I have a very green and lush backyard and a very comfortable patio in my backyard. And uh, very honestly, uh, it calls to me and I just would rather be lazy and um, let my brain get very flabby and uh, spend afternoons sitting in the sun and evenings watching gorgeous sunsets on my back patio. I just don't have um, the motivation in myself all the time to get after issues, even if I know I'm going to enjoy them. And I thought it would be great to put this discipline into place, uh, basically to uh, intend to drop a podcast every Tuesday, and that would force me to just stay engaged. 
So that's one of the reasons why I'm doing this. I'm looking forward to engaging in discussions with friends uh, in this venue, um, you know, putting together material uh, to, to um, either engage in discussions with others uh, on this podcast or put material together for myself just to, um, to work through and sort of you know, to think out loud about, about stuff. And um, I'm hoping that that will draw in dialogue partners uh, to keep that um, intellectual engagement live, help me overcome my laziness. So uh, in many ways, podcasting is for my purposes, for my purposes of intellectual engagement. And um, that all suits my learning style. And sort of a related factor uh, for me doing this is I, I just love having dialogue partners. I, I need dialogue partners to help me learn. I, I enjoy reading, um, but, but if I don't process something that I'm reading, uh, either with uh, Sarah or with you know, another friend, it doesn't, I, I don't get it as much as I would if I had discussed it. And I noticed a couple months ago uh, when we were here in Michigan, when we were quarantined, um, uh, I little honesty here. As a very very strong introvert, I was euphoric. Uh, just to not have to run into people day in and day out, to be able to stay home for weeks at a time. Oh, it was just I was made for quarantine. It was just wonderful. But what I noticed is I was desperate for conversation partners. I could. You know, Zoom with friends or uh, talk to friends on the phone or engage in discussions uh, on social media. Uh, but it just wasn't the same. And I felt, I really felt the loss of being in the classroom and of being able to kick around issues with, with, uh, with fellow students. It was just, it was such a bummer. And uh, that's when I began to get this idea of doing a podcast in order to generate, um, conversation partners. Um, I, I'm engaged in a research project right now on Paul's letter to the Romans, um, hoping to come up with a couple of publications several years down the road here. Uh, and last summer and into the fall and uh, into the winter months, I was um, with a group of uh, fellow students uh, meeting weekly to discuss um, the Greek text we worked through the Greek text last summer, and then we started over again after we finished, and uh, just working through interpretive issues, um, bringing interpretive problems uh, up for discussion, working through the structure of the text and kicking ideas around. It was so life-giving and so invigorating. I loved it. Again, with quarantine, all that was gone, and um, the motivation for staying engaged in that study and the motivation for staying engaged in in uh, the study of other topics and subjects that I've been working on, it it was just gone. So um, I'm doing this um, basically for my own engagement. Uh, again, I'm podcasting for me. This is for my purposes, and if it benefits anybody else, that's uh, super. If you're interested, that's just great. Here in town, uh, Founders Brewery, Founders Brewing, has as its motto. We brew for us. And there's an interesting story behind that. When founders first uh, began 20 some years ago, they uh, tried to make beers for uh, the market, trying to think about or anticipate what would people like. And 
uh, it was not a good business model. Things were, they were about to fail and they just sort of as a last, uh, ditch effort, they began to just make beers that they liked and experimented and, uh, tried things out. And they've been a massive success, uh, ever since. And so, uh, when I first heard that motto, we brew for us, I thought, yeah, that's, that makes a lot of good sense. Cause in many ways, that's why I teach. I teach for me. Um, in that I love to be in a classroom and I've sort of stumbled on this teaching method where I, you know, through discussion questions or, um, you know, ways of arranging uh, student engagement, um, I can turn students into my teachers and my fellow students that will aid my learning. And uh, it just makes the classroom a compelling place to be for me. And that ends up having knock-on benefits for everybody. Uh, as we discover together uh, what we're studying. So basically, that's why I'm doing this, for my own engagement and to just to keep me engaged with other people and uh, in this very bizarre time and to keep me engaged with things that I know will give me life uh, and will help me uh, to continue to be uh, transformed in my imagination redemptively. I want to tell you about a book I just read, an excellent book. This book is called uh, I Bring the Voices of My People. Subtitle is A Womanist Vision for Racial Reconciliation, and its author is Dr. Shaniqua Walker-Barnes. It's published by Erdman's, and um, Dr. Walker-Barnes was a psychologist, and uh, she is a clinical psychologist. And after being a practicing clinical psychologist, she went back to seminary. She went to Duke um, Divinity School and now teaches uh, practical theology at the McAfee School of Theology at Mercer University. And um, this is a powerful book, very eye-opening for me, uh, very enlightening, and it's one of those books that I know I'm going to go back and read again because I want its contents to just seep into the far corners of my thinking. Um, I probably wrote in it almost as much as uh, its author did. Um, But... Uh, the heart of the book is that racial reconciliation efforts among American evangelicals um, have not been successful because they have been controlled and determined um, mainly by white men uh, and black men. And uh, the voice and the um, the input of black women has been neglected and not been properly appreciated. And uh, her argument uh, is that um, black women have so much to contribute uh, because they are the marginalized of the marginalized. And over the course of the last um, several centuries in American life, uh, black women have had to learn to navigate life very carefully because they are, um, you know, being the marginalized of the marginalized, they've had to discern the power dynamics that are up and running in culture in order to basically keep safe. Uh, so they are the ones that truly see what's happening uh, in the middle of all the power dynamics that are up and running in culture and that determine life uh, for evangelical institutions. And um, I've seen this. Uh, I, I work in an evangelical institution and have for um, the last 15 years. And my experience in evangelical institutions goes back farther than that um, to about the last, really the last 30 years. 
And I have seen that um, so many of the dynamics, the structures of racism in America are uh, deeply embedded in uh, American evangelical institutions, um, sort of more so uh, than even what we'd find in uh, outside, in just sort of the, the larger culture. Most evangelical organizations are run by white men. Most of the, um, the people that occupy um, the decision-making um, uh, positions in American evangelical institutions are white men or white people. And uh, the contribution of black people in general, and certainly black women, um, has been uh, really non-existent. Um, and uh, Shaniqua Walker-Barnes brings a lot of that to light and presents an argument uh, for the appreciation of the contribution that they can bring. And I'm very interested in this kind of work uh, because of my work in Paul. Um, Paul uh, most of Paul's letters, certainly Romans and Galatians, um, Ephesians, are uh, highly concerned with how uh, the, um, the divisions that are up and running in our cultures uh, across social lines, across uh, class, and across uh, ethnic lines uh, Paul is highly concerned uh, to see to it that his churches are not affected by those same dynamics of injustice. And sadly, they often were. Uh, as we've seen Galatians and Romans and 1 Corinthians, really a bunch of his letters. Um, but the church is, the, is, is God's new creation in which he is putting people back together. And um, this new family that God has created embraces one another as God's new family, intentionally discerning the ways that uh, we are pulled to mimic, you know, pulled and pressed and being shaped uh, to um, mimic the divisions that are up and running in our larger culture. So we're supposed to be on the lookout for these things, discerning them, and then thinking creatively about how to uh, live in the face of them and not let them shape our communities. Um, and all of that is for the glory of the Lord Jesus and for the glory of God and for our own flourishing and for the good of the world. Um, so all of this is central to what Paul is up to. And because it's central to what Paul is up to, I want to be reading books like this. So I highly commend to you uh, this book, I Bring the Voices of My People uh, by Shaniqua Walker-Barnes. Several weeks ago, I uh, wrote a post on Facebook, and I uh, I wrote two posts actually um, about not wanting to change anybody. I think I just began it. I don't want to change you, and uh, wrote a brief meditation on that, and it started some uh, some good discussion. And I wanted to talk a little bit about the backstory of uh, how I why I wrote that and where it was coming from, and how I've come to sort of change my orientation to other people in general. And uh, why I believe that wanting to change other people is actually sub-Christian behavior, or it's just not Christian behavior. It's not the sort of thing um, that Christians ought to be doing. That's not a, a faithful way of regarding other people. And um, here's how my mind has changed on that. I was raised in a, uh, a wonderful environment, a wonderful home, and uh, an evangelical uh, Christian home, a white conservative, middle-class Christian environment. And um, our posture toward others and toward the outside world uh, is probably one that other evangelicals are familiar with. I mean, we were, when I was in youth group, 
um, our youth pastor uh, told us, you know, I can't go into the high schools. Um, that's your job. Your job is to you know go to school and you know, invite your friends to youth group or to witness to them. Um, you know, our job is to basically spread the gospel and to make other people like us, uh, not not have affection for us, but uh, to make other people as we are, to make them evangelical Christians. Um, and at that always. It just never felt right. I never felt good um, about having that um, that sort of posture toward my friends. Uh, I wanted to. Be, I loved my friends. I wanted to be genuine with them. They were just some of my favorite people. And the thought of sort of having to manipulate conversations towards some kind of like a cheesy gospel presentation uh, just never sat well with me. Or just even feeling the pressure. That um, my job was to was to sort of um, in this basically be aggressive toward other people and try to get them to you know kind of be like I am. Um, I never felt good about it. So that was on the individual level. Um, this I found the same uh, basic orientation toward other people exists uh, among evangelicals toward our wider culture. We want to change the wider culture. And we, we see this all the time in so many uh, evangelical um, slogans. We want to impact the world. We want to change the world. We want to impact the world for Christ. We want to transform culture. All these kind of uh, sort of expressions that we throw around reveal that we see the outside world as needing to be changed to become like us. Um, yeah, that's highly problematic for uh, some of the reasons that I will reveal. But that's that's the kind of uh, culture in which I was nurtured. And um, this kind of orientation toward people, I think, uh, affected how my wife and I were, were taught to parent our children. You know, we're supposed to um, bring them up in such a way that we make sure that they are Christians. That's the goal. They have to be Christian. And if they're not then we have failed in some way. So there, there was a lot of pressure um, to make sure that, you know, the way that we are treating our children was on this trajectory to make sure that uh, they end up the way that they are supposed to. That, that generates a lot of anxiety uh, in parents and certainly can generate a lot of like guilt or pressure in children. It turns the parent-child relationship into quite a manipulative one. One where there's just a lot of pressure being brought to bear. Um, yeah, loads everything up with tension and anxiety. Um, not a fruitful environment, in my opinion. Um, around 2000 or so, uh, I went away to uh, study for my PhD. And um, my PhD work was in Ephesians. And over the course of a couple of years, I was introduced to uh, Paul's cruciform uh, theology, basically how he um, sought to embody the cross in his life and in his ministry. Um, and that, for him, entailed adopting postures of humility, uh, just like Jesus triumphed, just like God triumphed through the cross of Christ. He, he won by losing. Um Paul's life would basically be the embodiment of the cross and would be a life of humiliation and would be a life of uh, service to others and always adopting a posture below others. And 
uh, over the years, that just affected how I um, looked at my evangelical culture of power questing, um, of seeking dominance over the larger culture, uh, of seeking to coerce the larger culture to adopt its own form. Um, it seemed to me that there was something dramatically wrong with the evangelical cultural posture that I was raised with if Paul adopted these postures um, that that uh, embodied the cross of humility, non-coercion, service, love, self-giving, um, if he lived in this way and then uh, only talked about his life so that his churches would have an example of what their community life should look like, uh, seeing all of that just really um, troubled me because of the way that I... Um, that my uh, evangelical culture was um, shaped. Um, that was that was um, the beginning of sort of a transformation in me, um, because when I was uh, when I was studying Ephesians and then learning about Paul's uh, cruciform mode of life, I began to rethink uh, the way that uh, my wife and me were to be parents toward our kids. Um, seeing them as sort of partners in this journey of exploration and understanding and entering into the mysteries of life, um, not standing over, but um, standing alongside. And then even just it, that whole vision really transformed um, our marriage. It transformed a lot of my relationships. Um, and that was the beginning of me in a journey of, uh, of transformation. When I uh, began teaching undergrads, uh, goodness, 16 years ago, uh, I was I worked with a group of um, colleagues that were um, building uh, the curriculum, the Bible curriculum for that all undergrads had to take, and uh, we did a a year long study together, just four colleagues and me, um, of Genesis one and two, and and trying to think through how to bring, um, how to basically shape our whole uh, first year um, student experience for a freshman according to the biblical. Um, narrative. Anyway, we spent loads of time in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And uh, we spent a lot of time reflecting on the fact that uh, humans were made in God's image and in the garden were naked and felt no shame. That That's just a, it's a, it's a remarkable um, little detail. And it led to a lot of reflection on my part and with, with a few colleagues, and I shared all this with students, um, thinking through what should human relationships be like if the original pair were naked? What do, what are the implications there? What are, what are the notes that we should sort of glean from that? How should that detail spark our imaginations? And um, it seemed to me that human relationships, according to God's good intentions uh, for our flourishing and for his glory, were to be characterized by vulnerability. Um, we were to encounter one another with postures of welcome. Um, we're so, we were supposed to be non-threatening to one another. There, there are no threats. There's nothing but safety. There's nothing but uh, goodness. Um, you know, the, the first human pair, when they were not around each other, had confidence in the other that the other was gonna was planning and scheming and strategizing for their good. Uh, when Eve wasn't around, Adam was confident. You know, next time I run into Eve, this is going to go great. Or I have something to share with her 
that I know that she will delight in, or I wonder what she has found out about today that I will wonder about and and wonder at. Um, So human relationships were supposed to be like this, and um, they were to be characterized by authenticity uh, so that nobody had a hidden agenda. I mean, everything was seen. Nobody's um, scheming uh, to do anybody else any harm. And um, those relationships were based on reflections on uh, the Trinitarian relationships between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Um, thinking about the whole dynamic of perichoresis, where um, each member of the Trinity is always welcoming the others into himself to be wondered at and appreciated and explored and delighted in. Um, And each member of the Trinity is always going out to the other to delight in, to wonder at, and to explore, and to exult in. Um, And so there's this ongoing, constant welcoming and entering and enveloping of the other with this uh, ongoing dynamic of mutual love and appreciation and delight. And I came to think about um, God as an eternal community of mutual delight. And it was with these sorts of thoughts that um, began to think about, um, in fact, I think this was in a classroom, and I just asked students to reflect with me about this. And of course, these are evangelical undergrads, and you know, evangelical culture um, is all oriented around evangelism. That's you know, when we when we imagine, you know, what should Christians do? It's like that's the thing we're supposed to evangelize. Um, may have some things to say down the road about that. Um, just because it is the case that there are no commands or exhortations in any of the New Testament letters to do so, which I think should raise some questions. Uh, at any rate, I reflected on this with students and asked them, you know, what do you think about evangelism? If we're supposed to be people that don't manipulate, that don't have hidden agendas, um, that enter into relationships with others um, and and learn to just love open-ended conversations, letting them go where they may, and letting the other determine where relationships will go and conversations will go, and not having any kind of an agenda. Um, What does that say about how we think about evangelism? When so often we're told to sort of turn conversations towards a gospel presentation or, you know, somehow manipulate conversations or somehow uh, try to get a little bit of you know, conversational coercion. Um, if that is how God did not design humans to behave from the beginning, and if salvation is the recovery of our true humanity in Christ, um, then is it appropriate to sort of behave in some of these ways in order to make other people Christians or in order to get a hearing for the gospel? I have been taught my whole life that that it is appropriate. And I know that the students I was talking to were taught their whole lives that it is appropriate. Uh, but it seems to me that if God is recovering in us his image, um, then that's not how we behave as Christian people. And that it seemed to me to be inappropriate to behave like a non-Christian in order to make another person a Christian. Like that reality just struck me. Okay. Um, now that was, you know, 15, 16 years ago or so, but that, you know, so, th- you know, 
in my in the process of my transformation and thinking, you know, these are the kinds of things that just weighed on me. Like something's messed up about this. Um, another factor uh, in all of this is uh, my study of the Gospel of Mark, and um, thinking about how uh, Jesus uh, says something in Mark nine that really runs against the grain of um, so many of the ways that I was shaped to think. Um, one of the big, um, one of the dynamics I think that uh, Christians can assume is that we Christians, we as the church, we have the answers, we have the truth, and other people out there are there for us to give the truth to and to to you know for us to change them to be in our image. You know, we don't tell ourselves that necessarily. We tell ourselves we're bringing them the truth. We want to give them the gospel. We want to see them get saved. Um, but often that's not how that's not how others experience us. Others experience us as coercive, as dominating, and as trying to make them like us. And one of the sort of the theological ways that we can um, talk to ourselves to justify that whole enterprise is that we have the truth. You know, we we sort of the church kind of has God, and we go out there to the world to bring them God. Okay. Um, you know, we have the truth. We are the embodiment of the truth, and we go out there and tell the world the truth. Um, but in Mark nine verses thirty-five to thirty-seven, Jesus says something very um, unusual. Um, it says this: Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, "Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all." He took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Now, in the ancient world, children are uh, people that have no social value, no social capital. They, they sort of don't matter um, you know, in, uh, in that culture. Um, and Jesus is taking the absolute you know, marginalized person and it's interesting what he does. He first he he takes the child. Uh, there's three actions that Jesus uh, does here. He takes the child, then he places the child right in the middle of the disciples. So I mean, he brings the marginalized to the center, and then he takes the child in his arms, like he wraps his arms around the child, identifying himself with the child. So Jesus identifies himself with the with the marginalized. And then he tells the disciples, and really, by extension, speaking to the church, whoever welcomes, like whoever offers hospitality and welcomes as a dignitary, whoever welcomes the marginalized in my name welcomes me because Jesus is connected with and associated with the marginalized. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me, that is God himself. And what strikes me about that is that the way that Mark wants the church to think of itself is not that the church is the container of God or the church has God or has the truth. And we can sort of go out there and dole him out, you know, when we feel called or feel led or whatever. Um, but if we don't, you know, we still are sort of, you know, in here, in the truth, in God, and we have God. Um, the way that Mark wants the church to think is that the church is in poverty. The church does not have God. Um, the church is in need of God. And when the church welcomes as a dignitary, the marginalized, it's only then 
that the church enjoys the presence of Jesus, and it's only then that the church enjoys the presence of God. So that makes, um, that blew my mind when I first uh, encountered this some years ago, this pattern um, of how God sees the church and how um, God wants the church to think of itself. So we are not, we are not the ones in the world that have the answers, and we are not the ones in the world that are like these locations of God, and we can kind of dole him out when we see fit, and we need to get out there and make the world like us. Our encounters with others, and our encounters especially with the with people that um, our culture says don't matter, that is when we get God. So, you know, we are the ones who are in need of God, and we are the ones um, who who need the presence of Jesus and of God in our lives. And the way that we get all of that is by these hospitable and joyful encounters with people that the world says don't matter. And that's why Jesus is always being, um, he's always scandalizing everybody in the Gospels. And he's, he's always scandalizing the people who love the Bible. He's always scandalizing um, the people who love purity and who love righteousness and who want to see God glorified. Um, he's always scandalizing them because he's going out and, and having hospitable encounters with sinners, with people that don't matter, with people that are causing problems for the righteous um, or the people that at least see themselves as righteous. So uh, just to say that was another um, sort of uh, big uh, uh, highway point in my, in my journey of transformation, just to see things differently. Um, I am not the answer for the world. Um, I'm a person that God is making new, and one of the main ways that God uh, transforms me and one of the main ways that he blesses me with his presence and his love is by my encounters with others and by my life-giving encounters with others, by my open-ended encounters with other people, and especially by my encounters with people that the world says don't matter, who are the marginalized in our cultures. Those, um, the people, you know, marginalized communities, um, people who are suffering in our world, uh, for people who call themselves Christians, those people and those places and those locations are, are sites of hope and promise for us. Because when we go and bring relief or when we welcome others into our communities, um, generating dynamics of inclusivity and welcome, and solidarity, it is then that we fully enter into our Christian identity, and it is then um, that we are blessed with the presence of Jesus and of God. Now, that is a very different way of thinking than we are called to transform the world, or we are going to change other people, or we need to encounter others and make them like us. Um, that way of thinking makes us imagine that we are sort of the Lord's army. And we need to go out and change other people and work on them, bring them the truth. Um, but the New Testament vision of the church is of these sort of vulnerable small communities that uh, venture out into the world to serve and that open up their, uh, their communities, their small households um, to others and especially to the marginalized uh, for encounters of mutual blessing. That's um, how God is making us new. And that's, those are the, modes of behavior 
that God is um, shaping us into. So all that has led me to just a very different way of thinking about other people, about um, being in relationship with anyone and everyone, whether it's a spouse, whether it's uh, my children, my friends. Um, I don't want uh, to change other people. I don't want to sort of enter into someone else's life and um, figure out how you know I need to go to work on them to make them more like me or to make them better. The way that the way that I've come to see my encounters with other people is um, mainly by uh, trying to discern how I can inhabit a posture of invitation, um, inviting someone else to um, enter into conversation with me, um, not sort of a posture of aggression or of cornering somebody or going after them, um, but um, behaving in such a way that I signal to somebody else that um, I'm safe, that I'm I'm a site of safety, that you know, if if we are in relation, my main job is to clear the ground so that you can see how much space you have if you wanted to interact with me. Um, yeah, that that's sort of um, inviting kind of a posture. If you wanted to share something with me, I'm very happy to listen. Um, if you're going to ask me how I'm doing or how my day was, I'm very happy to 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 um, tell you about that. And if you, especially if you are adopting the same kind of posture toward me that I want to take toward you, that can be um, a fruitful uh, relationship. This is a great, I think this is a great way to be a parent, um, to clear space for your child to flourish uh, and to offer yourself um, as a conversation partner through life for your child. I'm always available to be there as a cheerleader, as an encourager, as a listener, um, as someone who is uh, discovering the world alongside of your child, this is a great way to be a friend. And I think that um, uh, this is this is sort of being human at its best, um, which is, in my opinion, uh, modeled on um, a cruciform identity and modeled on God's original design for humans in Genesis 1 and 2. Um, and I think that that's the kind of humanity that God is is recovering in us as the Holy Spirit uh, transforms us into the image of Christ. This has led to a lot of other practices um, that I've uh, just sort of, you know, imagined and thought about over the last uh, ten or fifteen years, um, and and most of those um, are oriented around thinking about myself and how I can behave toward other people um, that will bring them joy and bring them delight, and um, uh, and behaving in such a way that we can enjoy delight and um, uh, wonder together and how uh, we can enjoy fruitfulness together. So I've learned to see other people as gifts to me. Um, imagining my encounters that I have with other people throughout the day as uh, you know, a possible wonderful encounter. What, what could this be? Um, what, does some, what, what is the richness that someone has to bring into my life? That's not necessarily a selfish orientation. I have found that uh, when I see someone else in that way, I'm seeing them at their best and I'm expecting their the best from them. That's a, that's the opposite of seeing them in a diminished way. Like, oh, what could they possibly have to give to me? So when I have a conversation you know, with a student, I just think this is going to be a great conversation. What am I going to learn? Um, or, or what account from their life are they going to unfold to me that I will you know, grieve uh, with or, or rejoice with or I'll find just fascinating um, or I'll learn something about that, about myself, you know, from the from the narrative that they unfold. 
And um, I think it's a it's a wonderful way to relate to other people um, to see the process of relationship as opening others up as gifts, um, because I think that that's a way to um, to relate to others, um, expecting them to be their best self. And often I have found that when you relate to them that way, they become their best self. And I think that that's um, me relating in a way where I'm being my best self. Um, that's a very different posture than approaching others, expecting to change them. Um, that's that's a posture of um, standing over, of being a judge, um, of being an evaluator. Um, and geez, I don't want to be around people like that. Why would I behave in that way toward others? Um, so I don't want to change anybody. In fact, in many ways, I expect others to be in my life to change me. I want to be transformed. Um, I don't want to determine the agenda for what someone else is up to. Well, those are some thoughts. If you uh, would like to contact me and uh, um, push back on that, expand on that, ask me any questions about anything I've said here, you're very welcome to leave a voice message or you can uh, contact me at Faith Improvised, one word, all lower caps, Faith Improvised at gmail.com. I would love to have a good conversation with you.